0: Hello everyone, this is Historian-splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Lyceum, and other platforms. And if you go to my Patreon page and become a patron at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have full access to all of my patron-only materials. What I'm going to do now is another installment of the history of the United States and 100 Objects, and this particular series alternates. Half of them are patron only. The previous one was on the Peregrine White Cradle, which was the cradle of the first English child born in New England, brought over on the Mayflower, and that is on Patreon for patrons only. Next month, I'll have more patron-only installments of United States and 100 Objects and of Myths of the Month. So this next one that I'm going to begin now is number 11, a human effigy ceremonial war club made of hickory wood and ornamented with shells and copper, most likely created by a Lenape Indian artist in about the 1640s and held in the collection of the museum at Skokloster Castle in Sweden, but currently on loan to the Museum of the City of New York. So why would I be talking about an object that is in the collection of a museum in Sweden when I'm talking about the early history of the United States? How did this particular object end up there. And why? What does it represent? Well, as I said, it probably was made by an artist in the Lenape Indian nation in North America, the same group that later came to be called the Delaware because they lived largely around the Delaware River. And although we cannot say for certain there are no records have been found explaining how this object ended up in Sweden, most likely, it was presented as a diplomatic gift to a man named Johann Bjornsson Prince, the 400-pound governor of the colony of New Sweden, which was located on the Delaware River in the mid-1600s, and probably it was given to Governor Prince sometime during his tenure As colonial governor between 1642 and 1654. So this particular ceremonial war club, it falls into a basic pattern or template that is not entirely uncommon in the Native American world. It's similar in its basic form to other ball-headed wooden war clubs, some of whom also have effigies, so human forms, especially human faces, carved into them in some kind of simple way. But this particular war club held by Skull Cluster Castle is unusually detailed and ornate with very distinct features. And in addition to the basic facial features, it has distinctive ridges and scorings carved into it along the nose and brow line of the face, which may possibly represent tattoos or ornamental scarification that was seen on the faces of some indigenous Americans. It also has an elaborately decorated hair topknot running from the top down the back of the head, which also is fairly characteristic of warriors and chieftains in North America. And the bottom end of this club, the lower end of the handle, is sculpted into the shape of a foot and in addition to that there is a sort of knobby knot in the wood a bit below halfway down the handle which seems to have been cleverly appropriated by the artist to represent a knee and so all in all what would have just been a natural naturally shaped piece of hickory wood has been given a detailed face on a head a knee, and a foot, which is more than enough in a sort of modernist way, you might say, to suggest and fill out the form and presence of a human being. But it is not a statue, right? It cannot stand on its own. It's about two feet long, and hence it is just the right size and shape to be held in the hand. Perhaps it was actually used as a weapon, conceivably, as probably many of these sculpted wood war clubs were. But more likely, considering how finely it's sculpted, more likely it was purely ceremonial and for display, and hence made for a good diplomatic item. So why then was it given as a diplomatic gift? How does it fit into what we know of the history of the Lenape people and New Sweden. Well, the Lenape Nation inhabited basically the zone around what is today New York City and down through New Jersey and into eastern Pennsylvania. So this really crucial stretch of the North American coast that is now today very urbanized, that was the Lenape country up until the 1600s. And like most eastern woodland Native Americans, the Lenape practiced a combination of hunting, gathering, and farming and gardening. And they lived in small confederated groups. There was not a strong centralized kingdom. There was no ruler or emperor. But rather, there were these confederated groups which in turn were divided into various clans and these clans were matrilineal so membership and status in the clan was passed down from mother to child and they were called Lenape which in their own language means something like true men or genuine men but the English came to call them eventually the Delaware and so that's a name you'll see for the same group today They were called Delaware not because that was their own name from their own language, but because the English named the Delaware River after the governor of Virginia, Lord Delaware, and then applied that name to the people they encountered around the Delaware River. The language that the Lenape themselves spoke is an Algonquian language, so it's related to Wampanoag and Narragansett and Powhatan and so on. But this language was not entirely uniform among the Lenape people. There were many different, as I said, groups and subgroups spread out along this large area, and there were different dialects, particularly there was a divide between the northern and southern dialects of Lenape. And the Lenape encountered Europeans, probably beginning sporadically in the 1500s and then more and more frequently in the 1600s. And as I've said before in other lectures where I've talked about encounters between indigenous Americans and Europeans, the indigenous Americans related to these European newcomers in largely the same sort of ways that they were used to doing when they encountered foreigners from a different group. They would interact according to polite diplomatic norms and Procedures, which included very importantly, gift exchange. And this seems to be basically how the Lenape tried to deal with Europeans like Dutch, English, Swedish, French when they showed up in their territory. And for many Native American groups, this could work pretty well. You could get valuable items, information, new technologies. But the Lenape territory was particularly desirable. There was a large stretch of fairly flat, uh, arable, temperate land along the Atlantic coast. There were very good harbors, including New York Harbor, what would later come to be known as New York Harbor. And so Europeans were particularly eager to get control or at least lay some claim to the Lenape's country. And this led sometimes to dirty dealings, you might say, where Europeans took advantage of or circumvented normal diplomatic norms. Very significantly, the Lenape histories record from fairly early on, record a particular story that the Lenape people passed down about their first encounter with Henry Hudson, an English mariner who led an expedition on behalf of the Dutch and was the first European to try to plant a foothold in the area that's now New York. And according to this Lenape history, Hudson's expedition communicated with them and asked the Lenape on what's now Manhattan to give them a small piece of land just for a shed or a garden, just as large as could be covered with an oxhide. And the Lenape, not wanting to be rude, agreed to this modest request, and so then Hudson and his men took out an oxhide and began to cut it into a fine, thin ribbon, which they then stretched out and laid out to encompass several acres of land. And the Lenape, not wanting to renege, allowed the Dutch to lay some claim to this plot on Manhattan Island, and promptly then shipped in a bunch of guns and began to build a fortress, and hence colonization of New York began. Although, of course, at that time, it was New Netherlands. So this is, you might say, emblematic of the way diplomatic procedures, diplomatic communication could be massaged, manipulated, the way ambiguities, language barriers could be exploited to try to jockey for advantage as Europeans started to move in to the Lenape country. In addition, the Lenape people were coastal, right? Basically, all their habitations were near either the Atlantic shores or major useful waterways. And this was a double-edged sword when they dealt with Europeans. On the one hand, it meant that they could benefit from extensive trade and contact. But the Europeans knew that if they wanted to get footholds on the North American continent, they would have to, at some point, contend with the Lenape. And they didn't want the Lenape to become powerful and be able to fight back against them. And hence, Europeans carefully avoided trading firearms to the Lenape. They did not have that compunction about trading firearms with all kinds of other Indian nations, such as the Iroquois Confederacy or the Susquehannock, we'll mention later. And this led to a comparative disadvantage where the Lenape were more poorly armed and equipped as compared not only to Europeans, but to other American Indians. And hence, they were squeezed out and endangered more and more over the course of the 1600s. And probably the most important event in the Lenape's loss of power and territory was the so-called Kieft's War, where the governor of the New Netherlands colony named Kieft began to demand tribute from the Lenape, maybe because they needed certain supplies or trade items or just as a symbolic act of dominance. Kieft began to demand tribute from them. And when they refused, Kieft attacked. He began a campaign against the Lenape without the approval or support of the colonists. The, The colonists in New Netherland generally benefited and approved of trade with the indigenous people but Kieft had these imperial designs so without their support he began to attack the Lenape and was joined in also by the English who were rivals of the Dutch but nonetheless English colonists from the Connecticut area came down and helped to attack and rout the Lenape's and committed several massacres over the course of this conflict from 1643 to 45. This was the first real disaster in the Lenape's dealings with Europeans and threatened their possible downfall. But already by that time, there was another European presence on the scene that potentially the Lenape could take advantage of as a counterbalance against the very aggressive Dutch and English and that was the Swedes who created the beginnings of the colony called New Sweden in 1638. So at that time, Sweden was really riding high and had intervened very effectively in the Thirty Years' War in Europe under the leadership of a brilliant ruler and military commander, King Gustavus Adolphus. And it was under Gustavus Adolphus that Sweden for the first time really came onto the European stage as a significant power with a new mastery of small, light, mobile cannon. And Gustavus Adolphus died in 1632 and was succeeded by Queen Christina, who was a very complicated figure with her own distinctive views about religion and philosophy and gender and sexuality, but was also a fairly competent, effective ruler. And growing Swedish ambition really continued under her reign. But they never got very far uh, beyond the Baltic. They became a major power in for a brief time in European politics, but Their territorial gains were basically just the the Baltic countries, much of Denmark, and some pieces of northern Germany. And beyond Europe, they did make plans for a colonial empire and started setting up small footholds beyond Europe. But it didn't last, and this sort of brief foray into imperialism by Sweden has been largely forgotten. They never made a tremendous impact as an imperial power. Although uh, what little colonization they did do can be seen as, you know, a bit of a, a small token of Swedish national pride even today. And it happens that I had a professor in graduate school who was Swedish. And at one point, someone in our class mentioned, well, you know, Sweden was a colonial power And he leaned back in his chair in this very characteristic way and said, ah, yes, once in a while, someone will mount an exhibit about the 20 years when we reigned gloriously over Delaware. (laughs) And it's true, this this foray into colonization can appear pretty trivial compared to what was carried out by Spain or Britain or France. But it seems it it did have some effect, certainly on how some people viewed and experienced the world. And the existence of this ceremonial club is probably a token of that. So New Sweden was a colony of a significant size created along the shores of the Delaware River, mainly the lower tidal estuary stretch of the Delaware from around what's now Philadelphia down through Delaware, some of southern New Jersey, and a bit of Maryland. Pretty much it existed, you could say, at the opposite end of the Lenape country from New Netherland. So you had New Netherlands at the northern reach of Lenape land and New Sweden at the other end. And Swedes had been going to this area for decades already. There had been traders and adventurers who had seen some of this land. It was not terra incognita for them. And they had made contacts with indigenous people already. But in the 1630s, the Swedish crown supported the creation of a new Sweden company, much like the Massachusetts Bay Company, the Virginia Company that had existed in England. The New Sweden Company was created to gather investors, mainly from within Sweden, and colonists, not only from Sweden, which was a small country, but also neighboring or allied countries as well. And their hope and intention was to found a colony that could make significant money from furs and tobacco for a trade item that the French and the Dutch were already making money, mainly by acquiring them from the indigenous Americans, and tobacco, the cash crop that was already becoming lucrative in Virginia and Maryland. The colonists that went over to create this colony were not only Swedish, but also Finnish and Dutch, and probably a few others from the Baltic. And they began with a fortified village called Fort Christina after Queen Christina in 1638, basically more or less on the spot that's now Wilmington, Delaware. The first governor of the colony was Peter Minuit, who had already previously served as the governor of New Netherlands. So he knew a certain amount about America. He knew a certain amount about the Lenape Nation already. And he knew what sort of strategies could compete effectively with the Dutch, and he jumped ship over to Sweden and oversaw the creation of Fort Christina and the beginnings of this Swedish colony. Reportedly, when his first expedition reached the site of Fort Christina, he opened up communication with the Lenape and the Susquehannocks, another nation from the area and farther west. And he held a meeting with their main leaders or sachems on board of his ship. And he persuaded these sachems to sign a sort of deed of sale, giving over title to a piece of territory to the Swedes. And according to Minuet himself, this deed gave them claim to an enormous swath of territory of southeastern, what's now southeastern Pennsylvania, the area around Philadelphia, and down through Delaware and Maryland. However, at least one Lenape Sachem, who was there, disputed this interpretation, and in later years said that, in fact, they had understood this document as merely giving Sweden control over the land within six trees. So again, it seems Europeans' taking advantage of misunderstanding, miscommunication to try to create some sort of veneer of legitimacy to their claims to territory. Minuit governed this colony for just a couple of years, but then on a return voyage back to Europe to gather more investment and supporters, his ship went down in a hurricane. So for a brief time, the colony was basically self-governing, and had to manage its own affairs, and began to spread and expand beyond Fort Christina. A couple years after that, Sweden sent a new governor, and this was Johan Bjornsson Prince, who governed from 1643 to 53, basically a decade. And Prince was a very successful and effective governor. He basically emerged as a serious rival and challenger to Peter Stuyvesant in the New Netherlands. He oversaw the creation of two new fortresses beyond Fort Christina, and he also oversaw the creation of a large governor's palace on the shores of the Delaware called Hof. And this palace probably was constructed on a cleared piece of land that had previously been a Lenape Indian habitation site. So by 1650, New Sweden was experiencing some prosperity. And it was able to intervene effectively in war and diplomacy and power politics in Eastern North America, strategically supporting allies like the Susquehannocks against other rival Indian nations and against their European rivals like the Dutch and the English. Most likely, this ceremonial club was given as a gift during this period. It is a symbol of authority much like a a staff or a scepter that might be held by a European ruler. It seems to be common for weapons that are brute physical instruments of power to gradually take on a symbolic role and to become symbolic embodiments of authority. And so it seems like most likely that is what this club is. It's something that takes the form of what could be a weapon, but it probably was meant to be symbolic and hence is more richly decorated and finely finished than other examples. And we can probably understand it as an object that was meant to cement the Lenape-Swedish alliance that by giving over this item to Prince, the Lenape were in a sense giving some recognition and honor to the Swedes as allies, much as they might do with another Indian nation. This period of success, this sort of moment in the sun of New Sweden did not last very long. In 1654, Sweden attacked Poland-Lithuania, the large decentralized kingdom controlling much of what's now Poland and the Baltic countries. Contention over dynastic power, territory, trade routes in Europe was still far, far more important than these small overseas colonies from the point of view of Sweden. So they probably did not even think at all about how this attack on Poland-Lithuania would affect the situation in America. But the attack triggered a war with the Netherlands that didn't want to see further Swedish encroachment down into the European continent. So once war began between Sweden and the Netherlands in Europe, it eventually spilled over to America. And the Dutch, under the command of Peter Stuyvesant, went south and attacked New Sweden. And they successfully took Fort Christina, And the following year, 1655, they formally annexed all of New Sweden. They were able to establish military control, but they still allowed a certain degree of local autonomy to the Swedish colonists. They were able to continue following their own laws and governing themselves in their own language internally. And this sort of new status quo continued until 1664, when the English took over. So in that year, England was engaged in one of the several Anglo-Dutch wars. And as part of this, they sent large expeditionary forces to conquer New Netherlands and then by extension also claimed New Sweden or what was left of what had been New Sweden. Now remember that part of why the Lenape had this close relationship with New Sweden was because the English and the Dutch had been so aggressive and violent towards the Lenape. And so now that New Sweden fell first to the Dutch and then to the English, this was a real disaster. For the Lenape Indians. They were now directly in this line of fire and as I said before they were more ill-equipped and ill-prepared to hold the line against European aggression. And so for the most part most of the Lenape people quickly moved westward and were forced to flee from this English advance. Many of them crossed the Alleghenies into the Ohio Valley but even as they migrated westward Divisions opened up among the Lenape people themselves. And through the 1700s and 1800s, there were political and diplomatic schisms over what side the Lenape should take in these inter-imperial wars, like the Seven Years' War, the American Revolutionary War, the War of 1812. All of these sort of squeezed the Lenape between the two contending powers. And also there was division over Christianity. Christianity. Some Lenape adopted and embraced the Christian religion, others continued to adhere to non-Christian ancestral beliefs, and so piece by piece what had been a somewhat coherent confederation broke apart And small offshoots of the Lenape, or the Delaware, as they were also sometimes called in English, ended up in various different places across the interior of North America. And the biggest group today is in Oklahoma. There are also groups in Wisconsin and in Ontario, Canada. So what about the club that we've been talking about? How did it end up where it is now? Well, as I said, we don't know exactly how it left North America and got to Europe, but most likely Prince himself took it with him when he was forced to leave New Sweden. And it seems that he gave a number of his possessions or sold a number of his possessions from America to a man named Carl Gustav Rangel, who was a very accomplished admiral, military marshal, and count in Sweden. Carl Gustav Rangel is the man who sponsored and oversaw the building of Skokloster Castle in the 1650s to 1670s. So he was in the process of building up this magnificent estate in Sweden just at the time when New Sweden fell. And Rangel was a major collector who loved to celebrate Swedish power and the reach of Swedish trade and influence. So he was really trying to ride high on this moment of Swedish prestige and imperialism in the 1600s. He loved to find and collect or consume exotic things from around the world. And he's one of the first people in Sweden known to have drunk cocoa, coffee, and tea. He began to collect artwork and artifacts as well while he was fighting in the Thirty Years' War on the continent, and he was able to capture and plunder fortresses in Germany and Central Europe. So this was the start of his collecting career, and his castle at Skokloster effectively became a private museum, probably one of the the richest, most uh, magnificent museums in Europe. By 1700, and the castle exemplifies the Baroque style, the notion that art and architecture should be rich ornamented and it should show off sophistication and the reach of one's power and knowledge baroque buildings try to present themselves sort of like versailles in france as the center of the world the place where all things that are beautiful or valuable are collected together and displayed for the enjoyment of rich powerful people and it seems that Rangel had an obsession, particularly with maps and globes showing knowledge and mastery of the world, artwork with exotic scenes. There were ceiling medallions around the dining hall showing the four continents of the earth. There were rooms around the castle named after countries and cities. And you could think of this castle sort of like a giant curiosity cabinet like wealthy or middle-class people might have anywhere in Europe, a little curio cabinet showing exotic items, pieces of art, minerals, feathers taken from faraway lands and showing their imperial sophistication. In a way, the castle became just a giant version of one of those cabinets. And maybe also you could think of it, as one historian has said, as a, a mapamundi, a kind of metaphorical map or diorama of the world. So there are items in Skull Cluster coming from different parts of Europe. There are Asian items. There's a lot of artwork, you know, paintings and murals showing scenes of America or Africa. But when it comes to the actual artifacts that came from abroad, it's a particularly strong and exceptional collection of Native American Indian artifacts. And probably many of them came by way of New Sweden. There are several headdresses and robes made from wolves, the skulls, teeth, and pelts of wolves. It's possible that these might have been worn by rulers as symbols of authority, or maybe by spiritual leaders who often claim a special connection to the animal world. And it seems that there was a wolf clan among the Lenape Indians. And this is this wolf clan was one of the three strongest clans that persisted for the longest into the 1600s, even as the population declined. So maybe these items are are somehow connected to that wolf clan there's also another wooden war club in the collection and this one is decorated particularly with copper more richly with copper than the human effigy club these items these wolf pelts and clubs were put into the armory of Skokluster castle on the fourth floor And hence, we can suppose that Rangel and his collectors saw them as weapons, or at least in some way as associated with war or warriors. Again, this doesn't mean necessarily that the clubs were real weapons. They may have just been ceremonial, similar, say, to swords or daggers that a king or an aristocrat might have with their insignia in it the sort of thing you're more often going to use in a ritual than in an actual battle. And when we look at these war clubs, as I said, the human effigy war club is made from hickory wood, which is strong and long-lasting. But the decorative materials, it seems, probably came from the Swedes. It is inlaid with some pieces of copper, and Sweden was the largest producer of copper in the world at this time, and many of the trade items brought to America by Swedes were copper pots and implements. It's also possible that the copper in this war club might have been salvaged from Swedish shipwrecks. And the shells are probably clam or oyster shells and they may have come from the same shells that also produced wampum, the colored quahog clam shells that were very often used in artwork and ceremonial items and also was sometimes used as money or currency, especially in the 17th century when there wasn't much European coinage being brought over to America. So it may seem at first, well, these shells easily could have been found, collected, used by the Lenape in their own territory. But actually, it seems if we look at wampum, at the sort of highly valuable shells that were very often used, as I said, in artwork Those more often came to the Lenape from New England, from the Wampanoag or New Englanders, by way of the Swedes. It seems that Swedes would trade various items in New England for wampum and then bring the wampum to New Sweden to use as currency in trade with the Indians there. And hence, it's possible that all of the decorative material in this war club actually came from the Swedish, or at least was associated in some way with New Sweden in the eyes of Lenape Indians. And that further, I think, raises the possibility that this item was a diplomatic gift that was supposed to somehow symbolize or embody the special relationship between the Lenape and Sweden. Now as I mentioned before, the item today is not located in Skåkloster Castle, although that is technically the collection to which it belongs. Today it's in the Museum of the City of New York on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. So why would this happen? Well, Skåkloster Castle eventually became a Swedish state property. It's no longer a private museum. And it lends out materials like all sorts of international museums do. It also, as it happens, gives out free images of all of its collection, one of which I have used for this podcast. And in the 2010s, the Museum of the City of New York began constructing a core exhibition called New York at its Core, which tries to lay out images and items from the different eras and stages of the history of the city. And they want to have a sort of complete layering to to show a sort of full, you might think of it as like a complete water column of all the layers and stages of New York's development. And in the 21st century, it's important to include the pre-European societies that existed before the founding of New Amsterdam. In American history today, it's now considered really a requirement to include that pre-Columbian or pre-contact era. Now, this particular club has no connection to New York City. It didn't come from New York City. As far as we know, it was never in New York or New Amsterdam, for either for that matter. However, it does seem it was created by the Lenape Nation, and that is the same nation, broadly speaking, that inhabited Manhattan up until, and for a time after, European contact. And it is quite possibly the most magnificent and striking Lenape Indian artifact that currently is known to exist. It's certainly the most, the most distinctive and remarkable Lenape Indian artifact from the 1600s that has been documented among scholars. And so that made it uniquely desirable for the Museum of the City of New York to illustrate something and to demonstrate some sort of awareness and connection to the Lenape Nation. And hence, it can be seen to fill in an important piece of the puzzle when trying to create a historical picture of New York City. So thank you for listening. And as I said before, my next... Object and my next Myth of the Month will both be for patrons only, so please join as a patron at any level if you want to hear them. And I expect that most likely my next lecture open for the public will be on Dark Age Britain, and then the next Myth of the Month for patrons only will be on the Arthur Legends. When I get up to 75 patrons, I plan to make this a regular scheduled event, producing at least one new installment a week, and I'd like to thank my patrons. I'm presently up to 71, so I'm very close, and I want to thank all of my patrons who include... Douglas Horgan, Colin Gorey, Alex Muller, Richard Murray, Slate Mills, Karen Pluschutznig, Benjamin Newcomb-Groyser, Jeannie Lyons, Julia M., Queku, Paul is East of the Pecos, Monica Kuniyoshi, Shamant Gila, Michael Sokolovsky, Christopher Grady, Heather Anderson, Martin Casey, David Aslanian, Steve Hamlet, Mike Coffey, Joe, June, ZMK5, Andrew Deldono, Chris Hoffman, R Shackelford 53, Joel Star Avalos, Carol Schriefter, Kirsten Lamb, Lars Rotem Krangnes, David Fiore, LS Ichiba, Andrew Smith, Spencer Anonymous, Orion Ashmore, Eric Daffron, Debbie Davison, Ben Schriefter, Frank Nagurni, Oiung, Sam David J.J. J. Newsom, Si Yuan Sun, and another anonymous. And lastly, I want to thank those long-standing patrons who have contributed the most over the lifespan of this podcast. And those are Susan Marsh, Amandeep Boyer, Rebecca Mann, Christine Galani, Jeffrey Schulenberger, John, Kirill Trapeznikov, Karen Fagan, Brooke Meachin, Adam Kath, David Lavery, Peter Goldstein, Joseph Murray, Rob Balgley, Gail and Jim Ellowich, Carrie Feibel, Ozzy Ellowich, Christine Pacheco, John Sullivan, Dan Hernandez, Judy Siskind, Michael Biagetti, Ken Muller, Ellen Siskind, and Carl Biagetti. Thank you.